Most of us have heard of the saying, Jack of all trades, but master of none. And we understand what that is to mean, of course. A person might have his hand in many things. He knows a little bit about a lot of things, but maybe not a lot about a few things, or any of them for that matter. We're better off to seek out the master and not the jack if we want the job to be done with expertise and excellence. We're better off turning to someone who knows it better or somebody who knows it best. When it comes to the worship of the Lord and his revelation, nobody can decide better how that worship should be done and how that revelation should occur than God himself. If the first commandment speaks to us about who it is alone that we should be worshiping, then, as we and we see that in the only God in, in Jesus Christ, then the second commandment speaks to us about how that God is to be worshipped and how it is that he is revealed to us. And it's not by images or the imaginations and the innovations of people, but by the commandments in the word of God. Of course, in no clearer way have we seen God revealed to us, but in his son who is the image of the invisible God, as the apostle would put it, the firstborn of all creation. In that revelation, God speaks his final word of revelation to us. Christ is the word who is God made flesh the likeness to which we are conformed when in God's sovereign grace we're part of God's family with Christ, the firstborn of many brothers. Colossians 3 speaks to us about speaking the truth because we have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of our Creator. Now, that kind of imaging is okay. It's legitimate. In fact, it's our calling. According to the word of the Lord. Because that kind of imaging focuses our attention where it belongs. On godliness. On the saving God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And our calling to live in obedience and godliness renewed as God's image bearers in Christ according to God's word, as those have been recreated in Jesus. It shouldn't surprise us then that when God commands us in the second commandment not to make any graven images, that we are to be content then to follow the way of the word of God and not in following the way of the world that exchanges the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, birds, animals, and reptiles, to leave it to God, to reveal himself for who he is in his infinite splendor, and then in turn to submit to God's commands on how best to worship him, because who would know better than that when it comes to worship than God himself? So tonight we're looking at word-centered worship and our calling to that, uh, commanded by the word of the Lord and centered on the preaching 
uh, of the word, commanded by the word, focusing on preaching of the word. So we're going to be looking first of all then at the word-centered worship as commanded by the word. Many, many passages in scripture speak to us about how important the second commandment was to the spiritual health and welfare of God's covenant people, and still is. And you see a lot of it in the Old Testament. This is one of the passages where you see it. Uh, perhaps the two passages, of course, that are most familiar, we mentioned one of them this morning when we were looking at uh, the uh, coming down from the mountain of Jesus in the aftermath of the transfiguration, and we, we touched on Exodus 32, and of course we remember that Exodus 32 is that portion that we read that speaks about the golden calf event. And then the other one is referred to here, it's alluded to, it's actually referred to here in our passage, but we can get more deeply into it when we go to 1 Kings 12, that speaks to us about Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made golden calves as well. And in both cases, you had situations where the issue was not so much at that point who was to be worshipped, but how. In the case of the golden calf incident in uh, Moses' time, the issue, was, the issue was, was very much about what was no longer seen. Moses was up in the mountain receiving the law, and, and we don't know what has become of him, and there is this desire to have a God that can be seen. Now, in the case of Jeroboam, during the times of the kings, there, there was a pragmatic desire as well, only it wasn't so much about what is it that we can see as it was uh, to maintain control, uh, maintain political potency, keep one's power. Jeroboam was afraid. He was afraid that if the people of Israel and the ten tribes were to start going to Jerusalem, which was in Judah's camp, uh, that in going there, there would be this loyalty shifted away from him to the house of David. And he didn't want that. And so he wanted to make it convenient for the people so that they wouldn't have to go out of their way to worship. So it's, it was a matter of potency. It was a matter of keeping your power. But it was also a matter of convenience for his people. Now, in both of these cases, there was this, there was this stirring of the imagination over against, like our passage would speak about, the commands of God. Jeroboam explicitly does what he chooses. He chooses priests and picks days for religious festivals that God had never told him to do and that were contrary to the religious festivals that God had called uh, out to be done and the priests that he had called out to be priests from the, the house of Levi. And God is imaged. He's imaged for one's comfort. So God will come down to us and to our level and even below our level, not coming down as ultimately would happen in the New Testament in Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God, not in God's way, as God would have it be, but in man's perverted way. Swapping the creature for the, cre or the creator for the creature. 
really an antichrist kind of way of going about things. We, we, we need to have a God that we can see. We need a God that is not a God that's heard. We need a God who serves our purposes. So that instead of us denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following God, following Christ, we have a God of our convenience, carved according to our likeness, what we like, what suits us. And you see that, you know, as we read from 2 Kings 17 here, you see that juxtaposition, right, between the commands of God, because that's what you're hearing. It's all the things that God didn't want them to do. It's all the things that were against what God wanted them to do in, and really dealing with the second commandment. And then all the disobedience to that command in our passage also. It's repeated, it's explicit, it's detailed. Instead of following the commandments of the Lord, Israel is innovative and imitated. It says that they followed the practices of the nations and they, they sought to be innovative with their worship in the process. It wasn't good enough what God gave them. They had to make their own rules. But a godly distinction, you see, between the ways of the world and the ways of the word are, are nowhere to be found in Israel. They, they, they've become like the nations. They've, been, they've become false, not true. You know, and that's, that's, that's the way it's supposed to be, you know, that godly distinction in worship and in our practice, right? That, that need to be understood that we're aliens and strangers in the world. We're to be lights to the world. We're supposed to be different. That wasn't happening there. And it wasn't happening because they weren't following in the ways of God. So we read about the use of high places and and, and not divinely prescribed places for worship. The following of the practices of the kings of Israel, particularly of, of Jeroboam, everybody just kind of followed his lead. And of course, you know, when you read through the, the book of 2 Kings and you read through the, the latter part of 1 Kings, that's what these people are always doing. They're following in the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. So they're always following somebody, but not the Lord. They, they sinned against the Lord. They're not observing any of his commands. They rejected his decrees. They did the forbidden. And it wasn't a very hard thing to hop, skip, and jump then from the second commandment and breaking that one to the first commandment. And so you see about the, the Asherah poles and the instruction of Baal worship that are mentioned. Because it doesn't take much to move from following the practices of the nations in one's worship of the Lord to the worshiping of those nations' gods as well, following in those values, or call them values. And it wasn't as if, and the passage reminds us of that, doesn't it? It wasn't as if the nations didn't know the right way to worship. In fact, it's very clear in, in verse 13 that they had the law and the prophets. You know, it's kind of like what Jesus would say later when, when uh, in the, in the, in the uh, parable, the rich man and Lazarus, you know, send Lazarus out to uh, my brothers so that they don't have the same situation that I fall into. And, and Jesus says, well, they got Moses and the prophets. They got the word of God. Uh, they don't need some kind of special 
special um, revelation of Lazarus coming. Well, you got that here too in verse 13. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. See, the law and the prophets are there. It's not like they didn't have the word of God to direct them. They knew better. They knew the right way. They just didn't want it. It was laid out plainly for them in the books of Moses, and then they received the, the words of the prophets. And, and they're calling them back to God's ways of a, of a word-centered worship. Follow it the way God says. And instead of wanting to be like God in godliness with their worship, as which they were called to do in everything, they just wanted to be like the nations around them. And, and that was always plaguing them, wasn't it? From the time they wanted a king, they wanted a king so that they could be like the nations around them. They didn't want to be the holy nation. They just wanted to blend in with the nation. Well, that's what ends up happening, doesn't it? They, they end up getting what they want. They end up blending in with the nations. They, they get exiled that way, right? And, and we find that the... Uh, you know, they wanted to go after the matters, manner of the nations around them. But as they did so, uh, they also find out that they would be exiled from their land and, and end up in other places. They, they got what they asked for in that regard. And that's always a reminder, too, and a warning to us, right? Is that be careful what you ask for. Be, be careful how, the, how you decide to, to look at what God's word has to say to you, because if, if you reject it because you think something else is better, uh, then the Lord will hand you over to it. Um, and, and then you can see just how regrettable it is that you make these poor choices. Well, the temptation to worship in the way of the world rather than the, the word is still our fight today. You know, people today act as if they have seen Christ, right, when they, they see the Pope. Because, because they, they want a religious figure that they can see, right? The, the vicar of Christ, they call him, right? The substitute of Christ on earth. And Christ is in heaven, can't see him, but boy, we get to see the Pope. And people go nuts over that. They, they love that. And they, they find that to be the experience of a lifetime, some of these people, rather than to find contentment in the resurrected, reigning, saving, albeit invisible, Christ who resides in heaven, who has all things in his hands, who has all authority, who is interceding for us and who is permitting us through his intercession to approach the throne of God in worship and in prayer. That's, that's all we need. What more should we want? You know, we're tempted to want what is seen over against what cannot be seen or who cannot be seen, but who can be heard according to his word. Now, like the days of old, we're tempted to base our worship on the commands of the world, perspective of the world versus the commands of the word. Plenty of religious bodies will treat the world like customers. 
finding out what they want in worship and, and based on those wants and wills dictate a wor worship that suits them. They'll, they'll do polls and say, well, what is it you, what would you like to see happening so that you would come to a worship service? Because the customer, you see, is king. Now that works well in business. Anybody who's in business in any way knows that uh, they have to look at their customers that way and seek to serve them. But then people want to transfer that. They say, well, that's, that's a good way to act in terms of the realm of divine worship. And so we'll innovate and we'll imitate then. And, they, and, and imitation and innovation have their day because we transform worship, or at least that's a temptation, to transform worship as the world wants it. A reflection of what the world likes. Right? And we're going to do what we do because people like it. You know, not necessarily because it's good, not necessarily because it's what God wants, but it's because we like it. This is what we want. Now, others will say that any worship's all right as long as it's not forbidden by the Lord. But, but there are many things that are not forbidden by the Lord explicitly that, that could then be introduced into worship. You know, you know, and this sounds nonsensical, okay, but it's just to make the point. You know, God doesn't explicitly say birds can't be flying in the worship service. They can't be flying around in a worship setting. But that doesn't mean that you're going to start making birds fly around in a worship and think it's a commendable practice because you think that maybe that will attract people. You know, some people want to make worship a matter of convenience. Now, again, we don't want to do anything to... And that's always something we have to keep in mind, right? We don't want to bring undue or intentional hindrances to people when it comes to the worship of the Lord. And, and there's challenges with that, but there's, we, we want to try our best to kind of to steer away from that. But at the same time, it is not an obedient practice to say, well, you know, let's have worship on a different day than the Lord's day just so that we can make things convenient for people you know, who, who have other things to do or who might think they've got more important things to do on the Lord's day, that, that there's this conflict and they can't make it that day, so we'll do it on another day. What happens when we take those kind of approaches? You know, is, is worship really going on? Worship begins first when we're listening, not to the, what the, the customer says. Worship begins when we're listening to what God says. We're listening to the commands of the Lord. That's what our passage is talking about here, too. And following the world's cue instead of the word isn't worship. It's following the world. Right? It's not following God. Following God is worship. Following the world's cue isn't. It's not respecting the uniqueness of God. Uh, and, and that's really no different than making God out to be something that he is not. No different than shifting the glory of the Lord to the images of men and creatures and making those our focal point. And, and then we, we find ourselves breaking the second commandment and in the process we end up breaking the first like the people did back in Israel's day. Now when we focus on the commands of the Lord, we'll find ourselves focusing on the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where it needs to be. That's what life's supposed to be, right? Who says to us, if you love me, then, then you'll keep my commandments. If we focus 
on the commands of the word, then that will keep our worship, as, as with all of life, focused where it needs to be, right? Focused on God's glory and not our own. After all, is that not what worship is all about anyway? It's God's glory. So word-centered worship also, we should see, focuses and it follows that it would on the preaching of the word of the Lord. You notice how often that the catechism will mention the importance of the preaching of the word in the life of the church. What are the keys of the kingdom? Well, they're the preaching of the word and the exercise of church discipline. Where does faith come from? From the Holy Spirit who works faith in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel. The Belgian Confession would say that the marks of the true church include the preaching of the word, first thing it's mentioned. And that's not without scriptural basis. Woe unto me if I don't preach the gospel, preach the word in season and out of season. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to those who believe, those first the Jew and then the Greek. God has was pleased through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. Now, how can they believe unless somebody preach to them? But we preach Christ crucified, stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. Back in the days of 2 Kings 17, people thought God was foolish and, and everybody else was true. Paul would say, let God be true and let everyone be a liar. It was the spirit of Israel at the time, but everybody else was true and God was a liar. The priests of Israel and the kings of Israel thought they knew better how to, how to win the people over, how to keep them from revolting, how to draw them to themselves, how to build an empire, how to look big, how to be big, whatever it would take. That was the mentality. And in the times of the Reformation, there were those who had that same mentality. We, we, we know how to influence the masses. We know how to draw them uh, the way we want them to go, to steer them. And, and they would use morality plays in those days. Why would, they do, why would they do that? Why would they put on a show? Well, it was attractive for one thing. And they figured, well, we can win people over that way with these attractions. So let's make images, too, of angels and saints and the divine so people can see them when they, when they come to worship, that they'll act like picture books for childlike, illiterate laity. Leave the word to the experts, but give picture books to the children. Such images, of course, are still being used. But it is also modernized with the principle that Practicality, pragmatism comes before principle. And it's hard to, you know, it's hard not to move in that direction, to think, you know, well, let's just be practical about stuff and let's just leave principle behind. And, and the visual comes before the verbal. It's, it's the visual before the verbal that's the reason that the sacraments or the altar takes the place of the pulpit 
in certain churches. It's the visual before the verbal that's the reason that certain bodies will emphasize a, a, a healing ministry over the word because it's a spectacle. And, and that's a big draw. It's the visual before the verbal that's the attraction of places where, where multimedia, theatrics, and concerts, and symbols, and colors, simply bizarre behavior even, takes precedence over the pulpit. And even where, where people are using words, they, they, they use words that aren't preaching about the gospel of sin and salvation and service, but of a God who's only there to serve us. That's why he's there. And if you come to us, we'll get God to do what you want him to do for you. We've got a God made after our own image. And there are different motivations for these practices, of course. But if you made it, if you looked into it a little bit, that much of it is a kind of a practical or, or a principled Arminianism that believes that means and the ends to these means depend on us. They depend on us. Instead of believing that, that God's word doesn't return to him void, but accomplishes what he sets out for it to do. Now, we're, we're going to figure it out our way, and we're going to make it work our way. Now, if the word of the Lord is to be the center as to how we worship, doesn't it follow that it should be the center of our worship? As opposed to this other mentality, we, we want our singing to revolve around the word and to be word based. Right. We all got our favorite songs, but, you know, even when when people are leading worship, they, they want to try their best to try to get songs that have to do with whatever it is that's being preached about. Uh, so that everything is focused on the word. You know, we respond to the word in our worship by way of prayer, song. That's what motivates us to pray. That's what motivates us to sing. It's the word of God. It's the gospel word of God. God's word calls us to worship and, and we hear God's word bless us as we leave worship. It's, it's, it's the last thing we hear before we go. Right? As it were. The word of the Lord as center in worship is, is, is that miniature, it's that microcosm of what the word is to be in our whole life. That shouldn't surprise us. It's the word that has transformed us after all. If we say, how is it that change has come to my life? It's because of the word of God. It's to be the word that moves us to respond in our lives with thankful living. Why do I want to do that? Because I'm responding to the word of God. That's what good works are about. That's what good worship's about. It centers on the word of the Lord, a, a word that's designed to promote gratitude in, in everything that you're going to do when you leave here today. And in the praise that you give to the Lord every Lord's Day that you come here. And it's tempting to believe that we know it better than God. We, we hear that in our confession, right? And, and we're tempted to do that in all kinds of things. We, we know it better than God. Keep my Bible closed. I'll, I'll just figure it out myself. It's always tempting to do instead of having our Bibles open. Well, that's true not only in life, it's true in worship. 
But who knows it better? How we ought to view, worship, and be instructed of God than God himself, who's made himself known as that sovereign, saving God in Jesus Christ by way of his word, by, by gratefully following that very same word that brings faith to people's lives by God's spirit, we'll show ourselves all the more faithful in praise and in practice as those who not only know who we ought to worship, but also reverentially want to remember how we ought to worship as God has explained to us in his word. Amen. Let's take a